Two weeks ago, we, uh, we saw how God has proclaimed his church a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people that he has called his own. In his letter to the scattered and hurting church, Peter has continued to build us up in the truth of who we are in the eyes of God. And this week, the title of the sermon is Rest in Submission, and we'll be looking at 1 Peter chapter 2, 11 to 25. And this week, things get harder. At the beginning of the series, I told you that there were parts of this letter that were going to be hard to digest, parts of this letter that we weren't going to like, that were not going to sit well, that, that were possibly going to offend us. Verses that have been and will continue to be abused by those who don't want to know the true meaning of the passage, but instead they twist it, they abuse it to to fit their own desired outcomes, their own agendas. To keep justifying their unjust actions and the submission to it that they declare the Bible demands. And that's where we arrive this morning. Our our text this morning is a portion of Peter's letter that that I wrestle with. Not that I don't believe the message to be true, to be good, or to be right. I do not doubt its authenticity or its authorship. This is the Word of God. No, I, I just have a hard time resting in the message of the passage. There's also a part of me that in our our current social climate feels totally unqualified to be the one preaching this text. So please have some grace for me this morning. Please do not hear me or hear this as me saying that I don't believe this word to be true. I I absolutely do. But just that it's it's hard to hear words of truth from a brother. Just as it's hard to hear words of truth from a brother or a friend, so it is also hard to hear words of truth from Scripture. As we read this text and, and go through this hard portion of this letter, know that I have been praying for grace for us, that we would have open ears and hearts to hear this good word of God that has been delivered to his church by the pen of the Apostle Peter. With that, let us read the word of the Lord. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 to 25. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it, if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? 
But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Thus ends the reading. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, for your word is truth. God, I pray that you would speak through your word this morning, that you would perform the miracle that feeds our souls. Pray this in your name. Amen. Little Kirkland advertisement there. They got cheap water at Costco, so. I grew up as the eldest of eight kids in a small farming community in northern Saskatchewan, Canada. Now, there are a few elements of that equation that, that people have a hard time wrapping their, their heads around. The majority of the time, it was great. I love my family, and Canada will always hold a special place in my heart. And other times, it was not so great. In a family of eight kids, it's, it's easy to get outnumbered especially when there are four sisters and a handful of years between you and the next brother. It wasn't easy to get to watch what I wanted to watch on the television, for example. Star Wars wasn't very appealing to my sisters, and my brother just wasn't into action movies while he filled his diaper in the corner. I remember one day I had laid claim to the TV in the house and was watching whatever it was that had grabbed my interest on that particular day when three of my sisters came down and demanded that they get to watch what they wanted because there was more of them and majority rules. No way, I said. If majority ruled, my TV watching days were over. Now, typically, we'd yell at each other for a little while and then the issue would be settled by some compromise that probably meant I got my way. I'll admit that. But on this day, on this day, it went a little different. One of my sisters came up with a plan to get things their way. The three of them went upstairs and told our mother that, that I had hit one of them. My mom had no patience for hitting, and in no time at all, I was called upstairs to account for my actions. No matter how much I professed my innocence, I was outnumbered three to one. I waxed poetic until I was blue in the face, but it made no difference. The result was that I was sent to my room and my sisters got the television. And as I sat on my bed, I was brought to tears by the injustice. We struggle with injustice, don't we? And rightfully so. Our God is a God of justice, and we are created in his image, and so we crave justice. We want things to be fair. We want to be treated fairly, justly. Karen and I watched a movie a few weeks ago by the name of Just Mercy, and I would encourage all of you to watch it if you haven't. It's not the easiest watch as it follows the story of a black man accused of murder in Alabama. 
There are moments in that movie where you are pulling your hair out, frustrated and crying because of the lack of justice. So many times I sat there asking myself aloud, how can this be real? I did some more research and found out that the movie actually played down the events of the story, made them more palatable, more acceptable to our brains, because the actual events were so mind-blowingly unjust that the producers didn't think people would believe them to be real. We long for justice. And the Bible tells us to pursue justice. Proverbs 21:15 says, "When justice is done, it is a joy to the righteous, but terror to evildoers." Micah 6:8 says, "He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God." Isaiah 1:17 says, "Learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless." And plead the widow's case, cause. And the list goes on. I could spend the rest of my sermon listing passages of scripture that encourage us to pursue justice. Justice for the oppressed. Justice for the overlooked. Justice for those who have been taken advantage of. Those whom have been wronged. We hear... We are hearing a cry for justice louder now than we have in many years. A couple of weeks ago on a Sunday after church, I was sitting in my office at home and I could hear the shouting as as from a distance. And pretty soon we could see people marching up Clinton, waving signs and shouting, no justice, no peace. We are hungry, hungry for justice. And that is what makes our verses this morning Difficult. In the beginning of our text, Peter is laying out how to live Christian lives, how to live out our faith, how to live out our lives as a chosen race, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. And he tells us to live honorable lives, to keep our conduct, to keep the way that we live moral and good, that that people may see the good things that we do and that it might bring glory to God. And then he takes that a step further, and he says that we should be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme, or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil. But living as servants of God, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Peter is saying that it's God's will that we live as good citizens. That we listen to the president, that we follow the instruction of our governor, that we adhere to the guidelines laid out by our mayor. Live as people who are free, we are told. Not free to go and fulfill the desires of our sinful nature, but free to live as those who follow God's laws and instructions and directions and desires for our life. And man, there is some chafing at these words. Be subject Submit to every human institution that is put in authority over us? What? What if they're really bad at their jobs? What if I know better? What if I completely disagree with them? What if, what if they're wrong? What if 
they are unjust. This is typically when we want to bring up some of the famous heroes of the faith who rebelled against their leadership, men like Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Daniel was told that he could no longer pray to God, but must pray to the king. And when he was caught breaking this law, he was thrown into a den of lions. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were told to bow down and worship a statue of the king when they heard the music play. But they refused, and they were thrown into a fiery furnace. Now God was with them, and they each survived their ordeals, their punishments for disobedience, the lion's den, and and the fire. And so we look at them and say, see... We don't need to be subject to the laws of man. We just need to follow the laws of God. Now listen, Peter isn't saying that these heroes of the faith were wrong. He's not saying that submitting to authority supersedes or is more important than following God's laws. It doesn't. God's laws come first. Sometimes as Americans, we are... We are good at confusing the priority of the rights we have as Americans and the instructions that we have been given by God. As Americans, we rebel against anything that seems to muzzle us. It's my right to not wear a mask. It's not fair that I'm asked to wear a mask when the protesters, right, when, when the protests are supported and I see pictures of people not being six feet apart and, and not wearing a mask. God is not concerned about your rights as an American citizen. God is concerned about what he has called you to be as a citizen of his kingdom. And he is absolutely calling us to submit to the authority that he has placed over us, however unfair, ridiculous, or unjust we may find said authority. Asking us to wear masks is not a matter of morality, it is a matter of comfort. And Peter is saying that as Christians, we are called to be good citizens. And that means that we don't have to like the person who has been put in charge, but that we do need to submit to their authority. Maybe you like the blue party. Maybe you like the red party. You get to have a vote as to which party is in power. And I absolutely encourage you to use that vote. Do it. Please do it. But when a person is elected, we are instructed by God through the pen of the Apostle Peter to submit to the authority of whoever was elected. Juan Sanchez, in his commentary on 1 Peter, put it this way. Through his appointed governing authorities, God maintains order in the world for the common good of society. Consequently, while we are in this world, we are to submit ourselves to all governing authorities from the top down. There are no exceptions. Peter's command is comprehensive. It does not matter if those governing authorities are good or bad. It does not matter if you elected them or not. It does not matter if you agree with them or not. Christians are to submit to governing authorities and those who are authorized to speak on their behalf. God is not surprised by their power. He put them there. I'm not saying that because I'm a Christian conservative, and so the natural assumption is that I glowingly approve of the man currently in charge. Some things he has done, I totally appreciate. Some things he has done and said, I completely disagree with. But the reality is that this letter was written before the U.S. was even the beginning of a thought. This landmass of North America wasn't even known to Peter. And so the truth of his instruction is not something that can be weaponized by a political party. In fact, the church is not called 
to be political. Speak into the culture from Scripture. Yes. Speak out against injustice. Absolutely. Act like our vote is doing kingdom work. No. Ally ourselves with the political party. Absolutely not. God is calling people from all political perspectives into the body of Christ. His own group of disciples contained a zealot, a man who fought against the Romans, and a tax collector who worked for them. Be a good citizen. Please, go vote. Absolutely. And when the votes are tallied, submit to the authority that has been voted in. Whether you agree with the person in charge or not, God tells us clearly to submit to their authority. And Peter writes, that goes for other levels of authority as well. Mad that the governor isn't opening up fast enough? Frustrated that the governor is opening up too fast? We are called to be good citizens and submit to his authority. That's why we're wearing masks in church, even though many of us would prefer not to. The governor says we need to. And so we are. We are called to be good citizens. We are called to submit to the authorities placed above us. Peter tells us that is part of our witness as Christians. Now, there are plenty of situations where if we can get out of them, we should. Seeking, or seek legal action against injustice. Protest as the laws allow. Vote. Support reforms but do not seek a legal action against injustice. Peter isn't saying that in just mercy, Johnny D should have just sat on death row and taken his unjust execution without trying to get out. Peter isn't writing that people should stay in abusive relationships. He's not saying that racism is good. He's not saying that we should be comfortable in an unjust situation. But as we pursue justice through legal means, we also need to recognize that there are times where we will not be able to escape injustice. There are times that we will not be able to make things right. There are times when the unjust will prevail. And this is instruction for how to deal with those times. Now be assured... God is not saying that injustice is good. No, instead, this, this text is acknowledging the reality that there are unjust situations in the world, and even in unjust situations, we are called to submit to the authority that has been placed over us. And that, that is a hard, sometimes bitter pill to swallow. And in case we think that this is a message brought to us by someone unfamiliar with fighting for justice, let us remember who it was that brought out a sword and was ready to fight for justice on the night that Jesus was betrayed. Let us remember whose sword claimed the ear of one of the guards. In writing these words and accepting these truths from God, Peter is acknowledging that it is time to keep the physical sword in its sheath and wield the sword of the Spirit to preach the word of God, for the Bible cuts to the bone and marrow of the harshest in authority. As I think of the vast scope of injustice in the world that sin has led to, the horrible things that many are subjected to, my story of injustice of being deprived of my television shows and being sent to my room becomes pretty small and insignificant. And yet, that said, there is still something that we can take from it.
You see, surprising no one, no one that knows me anyway, I didn't take the injustice of my sister's frame job very lightly. As eloquently and as clearly as I possibly could, I laid out this situation to my mother, to the authority that God had placed in my life, and yet justice was not going to come. Not because she was playing favorites, not because she loved them more than me, but simply because my sisters had put together a pretty believable deception. I had hit them in the past. I was not innocent of that particular form of lashing out, and so the lie was incredibly believable. And as I saw my mother being taken in by the lie, I was overcome with frustration anger and rage at this authority figure who would not be bringing true justice. And so, in turn, I lashed out. From a young age, I knew how to push my mother's buttons. My poor mom. I'm sorry, mom. Forgive me. Those buttons became well-worn with use. And as I realized that my sisters were going to get away with their act of injustice, when it became clear to me that I was about to be punished for something that I did not do, and that I was about to be treated incredibly unfairly, I rebelled in all the ways that I knew best. I yelled at her. I berated her. I was incredibly disrespectful to her. And it shames me to admit that this was not the first time, and it would not be the last time, that I treated her like this. And she was so tired of dealing with me in that state that she sent me to my bed to await my father. And so I sat in my room, frustrated at the injustice that had been done to me. And yet as I sat there, I was also fearful of the justice that I had earned. There is nothing that would make my father angry like disrespecting my mother. And that I had done. And though I wanted to blame her and my sisters for it, for making me do it, the truth is that it was all on me. I had done this. At about 6 p.m., justice was coming. For you see, just as there is injustice in the world because of sin, so our sin causes us to seek justice imperfectly. I'm going to say that again. Just as there is injustice in the world because of sin, so our sin causes us to seek justice imperfectly. Protests can turn into riots. Refusing to wear a face mask can hasten the spread of the virus. It's all political, we argue. Perception is decided by the lens of your political slant. Our pursuit of justice is tainted by sin. We intend our actions for good, but the result is not always what we had hoped. We've witnessed this on occasion, and in particular, the past few weeks. As I've wrestled with this concept this week, and really over the last month as I've been reading through 1 Peter, I've come to see how striving for justice is very similar to striving to live a godly life before the Lord. Now, obviously, there are ties here because striving for justice is a part of striving to live a godly life before the Lord. As we saw in the Bible verses that we read earlier, seeking justice is a part of what he has called all of us 
to do. Now that said, typically when I think of being a Christian, I tend to focus on things like how God calls me to follow his laws, to not steal, lie, envy, hate, etc. How I'm supposed to be good and, and how it's his desire for me to be sinless and how I'm supposed to be taking care of the world around me, being a good steward of what he has given me, all while proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ the and the, like the gospel to those who need to hear it, which is frankly all of us. And man, I'm really bad at doing that stuff. I will never be able to do it all perfectly. I will never be able to meet the standard that God has for his followers. And that's why I need Jesus. And Peter is telling us in our text this morning that it's the same with justice. Though we are to strive for it, just as we are to strive to live good Christian lives, we will not be able to accomplish perfect justice on this earth. We will not be able to make everything right. We will not be able to stomp out injustice, though it enrages us, though it frustrates us, brings us to tears and ruins our lives. We will not be able to wipe injustice from the earth. But there is one who can. And there is one who will. And his name is Jesus. If anyone is familiar with injustice, it is he. Jesus, the stone that the builders rejected, the cornerstone, he did nothing wrong in the eyes of God. He was perfect and blameless, but in the eyes of man, he came to destroy what the powerful had set up. On one hand, he came to bring down the walls of a religious system that was abused, that gave power, or that gave the people in power, unjust authority over those who had no power. Jesus came to establish a system in which all people, no matter their biblical knowledge, no matter their gender, no matter their class, no matter their place in society, no matter their race, all were brought into relationship with him through faith. And he turned to the thief on the cross and he said, Today you will be with me in paradise. The thief on the cross. So on one hand, he was destroying an unjust system, and that's why they killed him. But on the other hand, the hand that they didn't even know they needed, Jesus was stopping true justice from coming. The system that Jesus was destroying, that they loved so much, the people in power had abused for their own ends, demanded a justice that they could not satisfy. It demanded perfection, and anything short of perfection was not enough. The only way to satisfy the demand was perfection. And there was only one person ever who was perfect. And so Jesus Christ suffered, submitted to the ultimate injustice. Often when we think of Jesus suffering, we think of the whipping and the crown of thorns and the tree to which he was nailed. But his suffering started long before that. His suffering started the moment he was conceived. This is God becoming human. He had to suffer through things he had never suffered before. Hangnails, skin knees, wetting the bed, losing teeth, going through puberty, being laughed at, being made fun of, long walks in the dusty heat, hunger, thirst, pain, blisters, indigestion. All the things that we suffer through, the things that make us human, Jesus suffered through. You want to talk about injustice? Let's talk about the perfect, holy Son of God becoming man and why he had to do it. He submitted to the pain, embarrassment, frustration, and frailty of being human for us. Because he loves us. 
And so he lived his life, his perfect life, the life that we could not. And then as he called out the unjust religious system, they killed him for it. But when he went up that hill with that cross, he carried all our sins with him. And he took all of our failings, all of our dark secrets, all of our shame, all of the injustice that we have suffered and the injustice that we have doled out to the cross. And on the cross... He became sin in our place and then he died. He died in our place. He took all of God's fury at our sin. There needed to be justice for the sin of the world. God is a God of justice. He needed to make it right and so he did. He put that sin, our sin, on Jesus and then he poured out all of his wrath over him. Justice has been served for the sin that you have committed. Justice has been served Because Jesus submitted to the Father. And so as Peter tells us in our passage this morning, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Know that you are justified before the Lord because of the injustice that was brought against Jesus. And so when we suffer injustice, let us rest in the work of Christ. Let us remember that someone being unjust to us does not change how God sees us. It is not a reflection of his favor or displeasure. Remember that you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a people for his own possession, that God's opinion of you, his love for you, does not change and is not reflected in circumstance. And know that you will suffer. Know that in your suffering under unjust circumstances, you are pointing to Christ's suffering in his unjust circumstances. Though there may not be benefit for you in your suffering, know that in your suffering you are being a witness for Christ. And know that as you testify to Christ on the cross, you are also testifying to when he will come again. And when Jesus comes again, he will be bringing justice with him. Trust that God knows justice better than you do. Though we strive for justice, we are still called to submit to the earthly authorities whom have been placed over us. And ultimately, we are called to trust justice to the only one who can truly deliver it. Know that submission is not giving up and letting evil, letting injustice win. Submission is trusting justice to the one who can actually, truly, and perfectly bring it. The lion that Aaron read about in Isaiah this morning. The Lord God Almighty, the one who loves you, who has chosen you, who died for you. The one who will never leave you or forsake you. The one who suffered the ultimate injustice for you. As you suffer, as you submit to unjust rulers, rest in the mighty arms of the one who brings justice. What a fantastic, powerful, righteous, amazing, and gracious God we serve. Amen. Let's pray.